Well, good morning, Nansman River. I am so happy to be here with you all this morning. It really is a special blessing to come back to this church that has meant so much to me that I, uh, in the place where I was ordained, where I was trained in pastoral ministry, um, it is uh, not an exaggeration at all to say that I am constantly bragging about you guys. Whenever I'm in conversation with other church planners or people even interested in church planning, I get to share just how great a support your partnership is. And I do mean partnership. A lot of places, they want to plan a church, so they just send money. You guys don't just send money. You send people. You send prayers. It has been, um, honestly, key to our success. Key to the fact that we're still up there doing ministry, that we know you guys are here praying for us. When I looked at that list, I saw that it started with the, the estimable Danny, president of Southeastern Seminary, and then it ended with me. Uh, and I, I got to be honest, I think that what Ryan was doing was he was starting you off with Danny so that you wouldn't miss him too much while he's gone and ending with me so you'd be excited when he came back. But uh, tonight I get to end one of the harder books of the Bible to preach. I think one of the uh, maybe more controversial, more confusing books in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to do the last chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 to 14. And I'm going to be talking about a topic that is somewhat somber, somewhat morbid. I'm going to be talking about death. Have any of you guys ever been at a party where someone brings up death and it just takes all the air out of the room? been in a conversation where it's going well, you're happy, you're talking about cool stuff, and then all of a sudden someone brings up that dark, that sad topic, and it just really shuts the conversation down. I've been in that conversation more than once, often because uh, I have a bit of a morbid sense of humor. It's often my fault. I bring it up, and it brings the room down. The first time I experienced this was in elementary school, in middle school, sorry. Uh, it was just a couple of years after my father had passed away and I was at lunch with people in my class and they were all talking about what their dads did for work. And one uh, young girl, she asked me, wanting to bring me into the conversation, James, what does your dad do? And then I hear someone whisper, his dad's dead. Um, and that just shut the conversation down. I felt awkward and uncomfortable. It, was, it, it ruined our good time. We're not comfortable talking about death in our culture. We're not comfortable bringing up this topic. In fact, we often hide it behind all these colloquialisms. We say that people passed on, that they are in a better place, that they moved to a farm upstate, right? We have all these ways of hiding from death, of dancing around it. And I think it's because deep down we're not comfortable with the idea of dying. There's a famous psychologist who argues that every great thing we do is because of this existential anxiety over the fact that we die. The fact that we die is why we build pyramids, why we achieve great things. Well, the text today talks about death and it places it in its proper context and gives us insight and wisdom into how we should think about it. In the book of Ecclesiastes, there are these two voices, and we're going to hear them both tonight in this passage. There's the voice of the preacher of Solomon, whose wisdom is being handed, often surprising, maybe even unsettling in this text. 
And then there is the commentary on the work and the life of the preacher who explains and puts into the right context what is being taught. And it, it deals with the absurdity of life, with the fact that there is, if God is not in the world, if God is not in your life, no meaning to this existence. In some ways, this book, as one commentator says, forms a helpful counterbalance to the optimism of Proverbs. That means it's pessimistic. But, but what he's saying is that, yes, we hear the world portrayed in this positive light in the book of Proverbs where you work hard and things go well. And then in Ecclesiastes, you see this counterbalance that says sometimes you work hard and things go poorly. That sometimes you work your whole life and it all ends in vanity. So let me read Ecclesiastes 12, 1 to 14. I'll pray and then we'll jump into it. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the streets are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in their way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goats, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Dear Lord, I am so thankful for this opportunity to stand before you today to preach this text. Lord, I pray that as we hear this message, that we would come to know you better, come to see you more clearly, Lord, that we would remember you and live rightly in response. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. So immediately, this section, this passage begins by addressing, by calling us to remember our creator in the days of our youth. It's a warning about the foolishness that often comes with this time of youth. Now, I'm not going to try and put a number on exactly what young is. If I, if I do that, I might offend some people. But let me tell you, if you can remember a time when you couldn't talk on the phone and use the internet at the same time, you're probably not young. <laughs> I recently turned 30 and I'm very much feeling not so young anymore. But this passage is addressing those who are 
young, those who are in the full flower of youth and calling them to remember their creator. See, youth is a good time. It is a blessing, a gift from God. There's health, there's beauty, there are all these opportunities and freedoms. There is limitless possibility. It is a good time to be young. And our culture has a unhealthy preoccupation with youth, right? We place too much value, I think, on being young on this period of life. Our movies center around coming-of-age stories about adolescence, first love, first experiences. It, it all centers around this particular time of life, which is not too long when you are young. Websites and magazines provide anti-aging tips. It's the worst thing possible to look your age. People spend millions of dollars on non-essential surgeries to hide the evidence of old age. We invert what seems so natural to the rest of the world and we value youth over experience. And don't, don't get me wrong, youth is a good gift from God, but it cannot bear the weight of ultimate importance. It is a good thing, but it cannot be the greatest thing. See, a major theme in the book of Ecclesiastes is this warning that these good things in life are not ultimate. That, in fact, they are meaningless without God. The preacher talks about wealth. He talks about the pleasures of life. He talks about hard work, honor, wisdom, even righteous living, and finally youth, and says that none of these things mean anything without God. See, the most dangerous kind of idolatry is taking a good thing and putting it in the place of God. It's easy to say that someone is idolizing a, is making a mistake when they idolize a bad thing, right? When they're doing something they know they shouldn't do. But when you take something good, like youth, and idolize it, make it God, that is dangerous, it is deceptive. It leads you away from proper worship. See, a life full of these good things but lacking God is ultimately meaningless. A key word that we see in this book over and over again is vanity. This idea of emptiness. A couple of weeks ago, I was having dinner at Pastor Mark's house, and uh, I was sitting next to their youngest, who was eating um, those baby puffs. Have you guys ever had those baby puffs? They're like these tiny little, honestly, I don't even know what they're made out of. They're basically air. Uh, and he was eating them, and Mark told me I should try one, and I was expecting to get pranked because why would I try baby food? But I did, uh, and they were delicious. They tasted great. They kind of melted in your mouth. It was a really good little snack, but I looked at the nutritional value, and I burned more calories chewing it than I got from the food itself. And it was vanity. It was nothingness. It was air. I could eat it all day and never be satisfied. I could have as much of it as I wanted and it would never be enough. See, that's the same way with some of these good things in life, like youth. You can have as much of it as you want. You can indulge in it to your end and it will never satisfy you. It will never be enough. You were created for something better. See, youth is good. The young should rejoice in their youth. They should revel in their strength, their health, their beauty, but they need to remember it is not ultimate. And part of the proof of that is that it does not last forever. 
See, the preacher explains with this powerful poetry the tragedy of life's end. He talks about the evil days of old age. He gives this poetic description. He talks about how the stars dim, sight dims, how the body weakens. There's that line in there about the grinders being few, the teeth falling out, frailty, fatigue, fear, and ultimately death. Like a shattered bowl or broken pitcher, it is a final ending. This imagery of uh, dust returning to dust is used here in this section. Of the spirit returning to God, it's a reference to Genesis 2, to the creation narrative where God forms man from the dust and breathes his breath into him. The Hebrew word for spirit and breath are the same word. And, And so the preacher here is saying that what God created is undone in death. Your body returns to the dust from which it was formed and the spirit returns to God. It's the unmaking of a person. And his point here is to remind the young that old age and death are inevitable. There is nothing anyone can do to stop it. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are, how respected you are, how young you feel right now. It doesn't matter if you're wise or famous. It is the common end for all people. And death is a calamity. It is a bad thing. See, part of the beauty of this book is that it looks squarely at the calamity of death. It doesn't pretend like it's okay. It doesn't pretend like it's a good thing. It calls it up and it names it as evil. In our culture, we try and minimize it. We hide it. We avoid it. We distance ourselves from it with ceremony. We hide it from children and send the dying away. And we do this because deep down, we understand that it is not natural. It is not the way the world is supposed to be. In Genesis 3, death first enters the world as a consequence for the sinful disobedience of Adam and Eve. They break the command of God, the only restriction he placed upon them, and then they are sentenced to death. And Romans 5, 12 to 21 talks about how Adam sinned and through Adam's sin, death entered the world. has come to all people. See, this was not the original creation of God. It is a consequence for our unnatural sin. Death is not supposed to exist. And we all know deep down that it should not be and that it is coming for us. The wages of our sin is death. We, like Adam, have participated in this rebellion. We have turned away from the commands of God, and therefore death is coming. And not just physical death, but eternal separation from God. This is the greatest tragedy that we face. Death is that last great Enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, 26 describes it as the last enemy to be destroyed. The boss at the end of the video game. The villain in the series finale. Death is that last great enemy. And in the face of this calamity, in the face of this enemy, the preacher calls us to remember our creator. He calls us to 
think about the beginning of life as we contemplate its end. This is the wisdom that he has for us. He says, remember your creator. It's a call to humility. It's a call to recognize that we are not ultimate, that we are not final, no matter how powerful or young we feel in a moment, we are not the creator. We need to be mindful of the gracious gift that youth is. It's not a guarantee or a promise. It's a gift from God. And it will not last forever. We cannot pretend like we will be able to go around doing what we want on our own power for all eternity. It will come to an end. And so this is a call to discretion, to good judgment, to live your life like you owe an explanation to your creator. In my time in campus ministry, I met many people who would tell me that they were going to have fun now, and later, when they were older, they would get serious about their faith. They were going to do what they wanted in this season, and later, when they got older, they were going to do what they thought God wanted. It's like they had no regard for the fact that their youth is a gift from God and something they owe to him. There is not one season that belongs to you and another season that belongs to God. Every season of your life, you have an obligation to your creator. And you will have to give an answer for how you spend your life. This is the same message we see in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, in which the master gives his servants different amounts of money. And when he comes back, he expects that they had spent it wisely. You are entrusted with opportunity in this life and God expects for you to use it for his glory and for the good of your neighbor. We must remember our creator in our youth. Let's look again at verses 9 to 13 and talk about the whole point of everything. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh." The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So as we bring an end to the book of Ecclesiastes, to this time that you've spent in this wonderful bit of wisdom, the author has some comments on the purpose of wisdom, on the origins of biblical wisdom. He talks about how it exists to train us in right living. He describes how Solomon arranged with great care many proverbs, many wise sayings. He put effort and thought and, and care into the wisdom books that we have in the Bible. But he also calls them goats and nails do you guys know what a goad is? I'm not a farmer. Uh, I live in Philadelphia. Not a lot of farm animals there. Um, so I had to look up what a goad was. It's a pointed stick that you would use 
to prod cattle along. That does not sound very comfortable. I don't like the idea of being the cattle that needs the goad. But that's the description that is given here of this wisdom. That it is a goad, it is a uncomfortable tool that points us towards right living. See, the, the purpose of biblical wisdom is to train us to live rightly. And so we've been given these books like Ecclesiastes, like Proverbs, to help us learn to make the right choices, to value the right things, to turn away from the wrong ones. And a goad is a helpful tool in that, pointing you towards righteous living. It's also described as nails. Nails keep things from moving. Now, I'm not much of a handyman, but I do know that if you have something that's moving and you want it to stop, put a nail in it. It'll stay there. The words of wisdom we find in this book should be a nail that help us to stay in the right places with the right choices to make the right types of decisions, to not move away from the wisdom of God, but to stay rooted in it. See, the, the beautiful thing about these wisdom books is that they are a shortcut to good decision-making. A lot of wisdom in life is earned through hard work and through experiences, through loss, through suffering. But you can skip all that and just read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon had all of the wealth he could imagine. He had all of the wives he could want. He experienced the heights of life that none of us will ever attain. And he saw its vanity. We don't have to follow that road. We don't have to make the poor choice that leads to emptiness. We can instead take this instruction and choose wisely. Because ultimately, this message is from one shepherd. This message is from our Father in heaven. It is from God and not just human words. These are divinely inspired words of wisdom for us to base our lives on. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, God penned these words through Solomon. This message in this book is for us from God and should be taken seriously. And even as the author wrote this, he reminds us of the limits of human wisdom, of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Can I get an amen? amen. As a graduate student working on a master's in theology, I promise you there is no end to books to read and much study is a weariness of the flesh. But what he's saying here is that there is a limitless number of attempts to encapsulate life, to teach wisdom coming from the world, and it is endless. It is wearying. You don't need it. You need the words of God. There are countless self-help books tomes on philosophy and the meaning of life, but none of them are the living and active word of God. None of them can transform your life the way the word of God can. Now, don't get me wrong. I like books. I enjoy a good book. I like to read. I have been blessed and I've benefited from the books that others have written. But when you talk about what to build your life on, what to make the most important thing, these, these words, the word of God, the wisdom therein, 
is what you need as a foundation. It is the essential, central truth of your life. Value these words more than the endless books that will never change you. And so we come to the point of this passage and more to that, the point of this book, and I would say even the point of our lives. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Sometimes it's difficult to understand the point of a text. Sometimes as I'm preparing a sermon, I will labor all week trying to figure out what is this saying to us in this moment. Thankfully, this one was really easy because it just says it in one sentence. The end of the matter, this is the point. This is the so what of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and obey his commandments. It's like if you could uh, go to the back of the math textbook and just find the answers. This is it. This is the answer in the back of the book. doesn't matter if you didn't understand how we got here. The point is that you need to fear God and obey his commandments. See, our purpose is to fear God and obey him. In light of everything that the preacher has shared, the vanity of life, the calamity of death, the goodness of God's creation, the eternity that he has placed in our hearts so that we would seek after him, the whole point is that we should fear and obey God. This is our purpose. This is the only meaning that can truly satisfy. Nothing else, none of the good things God gives us can ever compare, can ever compete with the joy that comes from fearing and obeying God. That's what you were made for. Relationship with the God of the universe. Nothing less than that will ever be enough. And as we talk about this, I know the word fear can be off-putting. That can get in the way of some people as they think about coming to God, that we are called to fear him. And I've often heard people say fear means respect or reverence. And, and while that I think is an element of, of fear, I, I think fear means fear. I think fear actually means we should fear God. Now, I don't mean the type of terrified fear that you would have of an unpredictable or an evil person, but rather the, the reverent fear that you would have of a righteous authority. Right? This is the type of fear that a child should have for their parent. I know growing up that when my mom said, wait till your father gets home, I was afraid. Right? Not because he was not a good man, not because she was not a good authority, but because I knew I had done something wrong. Right? I knew that I needed to walk carefully in their home, not because they were bad, but because they were good. It's the same type of fear that you should have of a judge in a courtroom. Right? When you walk in that courtroom, anybody can go to jail. The judge is in charge. You listen to him. You respect him. You fear his authority. It's not a terrified, unreasoning fear, but it's a recognition of the power of the person in charge. It's a fear that motivates righteousness. And it's that same fear of God that makes him a good protector, right? Like, I was afraid of my father when I was doing the wrong thing, but when I needed safety, when I needed comfort, when I needed shelter, he was the one I ran to. Because I knew he was good and I knew he was strong enough to keep me safe. It's that those two things are linked. They can't be separated. 
And this type of fear is an essential component of worship. We don't worship things that are not greater than us. We don't worship something that cannot do more than we can do, provide something we can't provide. We don't worship things that are less than us. This fear comes from recognizing God is greater than you and you should do what he commands and therefore worship him. Our duty is to worship the God who created us, to obey him. And if the fact that he created us is not enough, this passage ends by a reminder that he will judge. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There is a judgment awaiting every single one of us. God will stand in judgment over every secret deed. Everything we've done, everything we've thought, everything we've said, God will stand in judgment. We will have to give an answer to him over every work, good or evil. All of creation, rich, poor, young, old, will have to answer to God concerning their actions in life. And the fact of judgment, the fact that God will stand in judgment over creation, actually gives meaning to this world. The preacher said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity because death would bring an end to whatever you built. To whatever you created, death would take it away. But the fact that there is a God who will stand in judgment over your life means that everything has meaning. Everything matters because God will hold you to account for the things of this life. If God will bring every secret deed into judgment, then what we do matters. This life matters. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter how beautiful or respected you are. What matters is what God thinks of you. What matters is what he thinks of the way you have lived your life, of the things that you did in your youth, in your time on this earth. Have you ever gotten a grade back on a paper that you didn't think you deserved? Or you got a review from a boss that you thought was unfair? I know I have in the past written what I thought was a great paper only to get a very poor grade because I did not understand the assignment. I didn't understand what was being asked of me. I had been working towards the wrong goals and it ended up wasting my effort and my time and resulting in a poor grade. Think of the tragedy of those who live this life not understanding the assignment, working towards the wrong goals, building their hope, their future on the wrong things, making the wrong choices, and then one day standing before the God of the universe who looks on them in judgment, who asks them, what did you do with your time in this life? And here's where things get hairy. Here's where the problem really crops up. Not a single one of us can live a life that satisfies the requirements of God. 
Not a single one of us can look back at our life and say that we have lived a life that was worthy of him. We have not been righteous enough. We have not been kind enough, obedient enough, reverent enough for God. We have failed. We have fallen short of the glory of God. See, we each have sinned like Adam. We have earned death through our disobedience. We have chosen to ignore the commands of God and earned his wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love that he has for us, has sent his son Jesus. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who never broke the commands of God, who satisfied him in all his ways, died on the cross in our place. He died on the cross so that all who turn from their sins, who are united to him through faith, are forgiven and can become children of God. See, we cannot follow God without Christ. We are sinners unable to please God, yet he loved us so much that he created a way for us to confidently stand before him one day. If we turn from our sins in repentance and place our faith in Jesus, we are forgiven. And the beauty is there's even more good news. See, Christ did not just die for our sins and remain dead. He was raised from the dead, resurrected to new life. And in him, in that new life we have in Christ, we can walk in obedience to God's commands. See, through his spirit in us, his spirit abiding in us, we can obey these commands of God. We can actually turn away from sin and choose righteousness. We can actually follow the wise teachings of Scripture. See, we talked about this calamity of death, this great enemy that we cannot defeat. Well, death was defeated at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death was defeated when Christ was raised from the dead, and we will be like him when he returns. We will be made glorious like Christ. We will be given imperishable bodies that cannot die, never again to fear death, always to be in the presence of the Lord. Christ has broken the power of sin and death so that his children can walk in newness of life. This is not a hopeless call. One day we can confidently stand before the judgment of God, knowing that we have been forgiven and the greatest enemy of all has been conquered. The last great enemy has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what? What's the point of this message, the point of this book? We should fear and obey God. I can't give you any other assignment based off of what I've read here. I can't tell you anything else to do. You should fear and obey God. And the only way to do that, the only way to please him, is to place your faith in Jesus. To receive him as Savior and Lord. To turn from your sin and follow him in faith and repentance. See, nothing in this life will satisfy you. You can pursue success. You can pursue wealth. 
you can pursue fame and get a lot of followers on TikTok or whatever. You can do all of that. You can reach the heights of this world and you will not be satisfied if you have not found faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing in this life will satisfy you. It is vanity. It is chasing after the wind. Your youth will not last. It will not be sufficient. And when you stand before God in judgment, all that matters is whether you have placed your faith in Christ. So turn to him. Trust him in faith and find life. Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for the gracious gift of your son. We are so thankful for the words, your gospel hope that you have given us this message that we can build our lives on. Lord, I pray that for those here tonight, if anyone here has not yet turned from their sin, turned from the vanity of this life to find ultimate hope in you, I pray that today they would, that this morning they would take that step of faith. Lord, I pray for this church. I, I thank you for Nansman River, and I thank you for the blessing that they are in this community and in, in my own life. I pray that you would continue to shape and form them as disciples of you, Lord, that they would forsake the fruitless loves of this life and instead place their hope entirely in you, that they would be people of your gospel, sharing it with the lost so that all could hear and respond. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.